Okay, Dan, welcome to the show. Um, so this interview is going to focus on your most recent book, Interconnected. And I suppose the the book kind of revolves around a, an incident happened whenever you were in Mexico, um, when you were quite young, um, you fell off a horse. Um, so if you maybe want to tell us about um, this experience and how this impacted you for the rest of your, your life. Yeah. Well, thanks, Niall. It's great to be here. And, you know, that experience, I never knew its relevance for all sorts of things. But the experience itself was I was working uh, just before I turned 20 for the World Health Organization in Mexico. And I was actually studying uh, the way the healthcare system was changing and uh, they were expanding a dam. And uh, one day I was going out to interview the queen of the mushrooms in a town called Huautla. Uh, in uh, the state of Oaxaca in Mexico. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the horse that I was on was this wonderful horse, but um, I didn't cinch up his saddle after we were trotting for a while. So when we went, got to a full gallop, the saddle, you know, turned to the horse's belly and my feet stayed in the stirrups. Um, and so I was actually dragged for, they tell me, about 100 meters. And... Um, you know, they thought I was dead, but I wasn't dead. And then they thought I had broken my neck, which I hadn't broken my neck, but I had destroyed my face. And more than breaking my nose and teeth, you know, I actually lost my identity for about 24 hours. I had no idea who I was. So I had this experience of being like without words and without uh, a name of a narrative um, source of self, you know. So I was just wide awake, but without the filtering layer of a personal identity. Um, anyway, it was quite an amazing experience. I was, I was able to attend to all sorts of things that had this vibrant color to them and sound and the feeling of things, the taste of things, the smell of things. Everything was like uh, exploding with, with luscious details. And it was almost, I wouldn't say almost, it was hilarious. I was laughing a lot. And I think they thought I was losing my mind. But in fact, I think I had found my mind, which had been buried under layers of being told by my parents, by my peers, by teachers, by society, you know, that who I was was this separate self named Dan. And, uh, and then I, it, it, I just sort of, after 24 hours, sort of came back to the identity I had grown with. And then the issue was, you know, how to make sense of that. So over time, what then happened was, it was uh, learning that um, maybe it was from the head injury, maybe it was from the experience of simply um, an existential wake up call, but I was kind of less anxious, less uh, uh, worried about things. And, and it wasn't until years later that I made a connection through a colleague, Jack Cornfield, about what that might have anything to do with with life and you know how we we live our lives so that that's that was the accident yeah that's so interesting um i'm just curious to ask you know do you think a similar i don't want to say mechanism but do you think a similar mechanism is at work in in all cases of post-traumatic growth do you think it's something to do with you know maybe losing your your current identity and having to update your mental model so that you're 
incorporating a wider view of yourself? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Niall. I, I, um, you know, in writing this book, Interconnected, I really wanted to dive into that question of, you know, who are we, what shapes us, and, you know, what are the things that, uh, you know, may limit our experience of life, you know, and so this notion, you know, that I, I didn't really have a name for it, but I think indigenous teachings have taught it for thousands of years and contemplative practice have taught it that the idea of a separate self, something I call the solo self, you know, that's only in your body um, is actually an illusion, you know, and that we're really part of much larger circles of belonging. Um, you know, it's ancient teaching. So in a way, this isn't new. I was trained as a scientist in the Western tradition. You know, I'm a, a, a research person who's studied initially biochemistry and then later attachment research um, and also trained as a Western physician. So I keep on saying Western, but it's really a modern kind of linear perspective on things. So there's, there's, there's a broader view that, that identi can identify that separate solo self as actually a construction of the mind. And then you see, okay, well then what what is it that i can do to understand from a scientific point of view what indigenous and contemplative wisdom traditions have been saying for all these really millennia for thousands of years and so in interconnected what i want to do is look at um, what are the steps across the lifespan that create a separate self what are the neural mechanisms in the brain that keep on reinforcing in our neural architecture, this idea of separation. And then that's where the accident came in to see that my head banging on the rocks, <clears throat> you know, was likely shutting down this area of the brain in the midline area is called the default mode network that creates a narrative, <coughs> excuse me, a narrative sense of self. And then to say, okay, well, that is a part of the brain that's actually learning from what you keep on being told. So so when you let that loosen up, you know, then you start to feel that your identity is much broader than the body you're born into. The sense of self, which can include three things, spa, I remember it with sensation, perspective and agency, you know, then you realize I can have the sensation, not just of this body, but of relationships I'm in, of, of the forest I'm walking in, of the whole of life on earth, and the perspective of the whole of life, not just the body. And then the agency, how do you act on behalf of not just the body, right? The solo self, but actually for people you love, for people you don't know, but are part of your human family, for people, the larger family of life on earth. So then I realized, well, if spa is how scientists define self, you know, they don't say that, but when you extract from what they are looking at, it's sensation, S, perspective, P, agency. Then it became clear, wow, the, the brain is learning a lie that that spa is only based inside the body. And then when I went around talking to people about this, they said, of course, the self is the body. My self is here. Here's myself. I go, well, actually, let's, let's take a deep breath around that. Because if you're only acting on behalf of this, then we're doomed. Because then you can understand racism and social injustice. You can understand the polarization we have. You can understand even climate, the climate crisis, is we're excessively differentiating our human species from other species. So then the, as the book was emerging, it was like, wow, this isn't just like some journey to let's just 
explore a fascinating topic. Then it became, as I was talking to people about, it, like a conversation we in our human family need to have that modern constructions of a separate self are basically per perpetuating a lethal lie. And I say lethal, not to get us all hysterical, but we're actually killing ourselves literally with social injustice and literally with what we're doing to the climate. Just a quick break here to tell you about an exciting new membership we're developing, and then we'll get right back to the show. This gets you access to our mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information. So interesting. Um, so in the book you talk about, in the introduction you talk about the six pandemics and there's a prime the primary cause of the these pandemics so you maybe want to tell us what those are and uh if you could maybe expand a bit more on how this this um our current definition of self why this might be the root of so many of the world's most major problems today yeah exactly well you know, the, f the first pandemic to talk about is just, um, you know, the way we mistreat each other, you know, and certainly you can almost point to any country. You can certainly look at Northern Ireland that way. You could look at the United States that way. You can look at Canada, you know, and what was done to indigenous peoples, not just in Canada, the United States. You can look, I mean, we can go country by country um, and just say, this is what humans do to each other. We, we really differentiate and say, my in-group is better than you. And so that's like a plural version of the solo self. People with bodies like mine or who believe things that mine believe or, you know, have skin color, the same skin color. If you're in the out-group, you know, I'm going to treat you like a piece of trash or worse, I will actually end your life. So let's just put that under the term social injustice, including racism. So that is a plural version of the solo self. Then we, then we have another pandemic, which is the pandemic of misinformation, you know, especially with the internet the way it is now. All of the world, you know, people are pushing against the idea that there's factual knowledge, you know, there's something called science and there's a way of actually understanding reality. And instead what we do is we get in these polarized, differentiated groups of, you know, collected misinformation bubbles, you know, and so that, that is due to this solo self business. So that's number two. Um, number three is you have actually a pandemic of uh, people being addicted to screens, you know, and this is even before the viral pandemic, uh, you know, uh, but people are now, you know, you, you feel some kind of connection to the screen thing. Now, the irony is we're able to talk to each other on screen. So screens aren't all bad, but we need to have connections, authentic connections with each other, not just with social media. So that's a third pandemic. A fourth pandemic, of course, is the viral pandemic. And in many ways, the reason we got 
uh, into that um, was because we were not recognizing the integrity of the wilds and we got exposed to a virus that was you know in wildlife that came to us and then the way we mishandled this pandemic was because people couldn't get together because of these other ways we isolate and don't cooperate and don't believe in factual information so that's the viral pandemic that's number four you know a, a fifth pandemic you, you know you could throw into all this uh is the way biodiversity is being destroyed and the climate is being affected so that you can see that as from you know this solo self perspective of the modern culture i would i would throw in now also the pandemic of loneliness you know that it, it isn't in every culture but in modern cultures you see this people are very lonely you know united states is a, one of the most individualistic countries we have some of the highest rates of isolation and loneliness uh, before the pandemic and all the mental health problems with depression anxiety addiction and suicide are just growing enormously in the United States at least. So those pandemics I think are all caused by the pandemic of the solo self, the underlying cause, it's certainly making them worse, but I think it's actually even causal. And so the, the sad news about it is like we're creating our own you know, destruction. The good news about that is if the mind constructs the self, which I believe it does, we can use the mind to actually turn this around. And we still have a short window of time, a very small window, short span of time when we can do this. But with summits like the one you're having, where we make a bridge between spirituality, if you will, and science, you know, where we reach to ancient practices, contemplative and indigenous teachings, which teach, you know, basically here's how to have a life of meaning beyond just survival and how to have connection beyond just your, your own body or bodies like it. For me, when I talk to people in various spiritual settings and I say, well, what does it mean to be spiritual? They'll say it's, you know, connection beyond just your, your individuality or people like you. And it's about, you know, meaning beyond just surviving. Then I go, okay, well then really this solo self and busting through it is a spiritual journey. And my deepest hope for the book Interconnected is it joins the deep scientific dive with the ancient indigenous and contemplative teachings with spiritual paths that say i'm looking for something much more than just my individuality something feels meaningless about only being for the individual and i think that meaninglessness that is missing is because modern culture has told you that the self is only in your body and it's just not true so my hope for the book is that in a very loving and supportive way, it, it brings the reader on a journey that uh, when I was doing the audio reading for the book, the engineer started entering this altered state of awe, you know, and, and, he, and he couldn't function as an engineer. So we had to actually stop the recording and say, okay, what's going on? He goes, you're just reading the words, but it's like making me shift my sense of self. So I don't know what to do. I said, okay. So I gave him like a synopsis of the book. I said, so this is what it may do to you, but we need you to be an audio engineer now. And then you, you'll get a copy of the book later. So it was pretty funny. Um, but, you know, my hope is that the book offers that kind of journey, that it's not just, okay, here's some ways indigenous and contemplative teachings fit with modern science views. Isn't that interesting? But rather it 
it, it leads to an inner journey of some people might call a spiritual journey, but certainly a transformative journey where the separate self view stops being, uh, you know, something that enslaves you. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's that. I, I think that's a potentiality of a conversation that we need to have all around humanity, all around this globe, you know, the modern view which some people would say was derived from the West, which may have originated there, but it is now West and East, North and South. So the modern perspective, it's not in every culture, but in many modern cultures, this is the view of a separate, isolated, shrunken, solo self, we'll call it. A hundred percent. Now, with the book, I would say that it's something, it's one to be read slowly because at the, at the end of most of the sections, there's a question that gets you to really reflect on um you know how this relates to you personally and can kind of shift your perspective as you're reading it um you know for someone that's listening to this that let's say they're they maybe fall in the skeptic uh, camp and they really do believe them themselves to be this solo isolated self and that's their that's their felt sense every day and they're they just think this is this is nonsense you know this this doesn't make any sense what, what would you say the most compelling evidence is that we are not just you know our bodies and we are not just this sort of this isolated entity this this ego yeah well it's a great question Niall. you know i um i used to teach with a wonderful irishman uh, john o'donohue uh, o'donohue we'd say in american english um you know and john was uh, an irish catholic priest he was a philosopher, a poet, uh, and in his own words, he was a, an Irish mystic. And mm -hmm. I used to say to John, yeah, when we, would, we, we became really close friends, and I would say, you know, uh, before we would teach, I said, well, what, what is this mystic thing? What does that really mean? I've never used the word. What does it mean? He goes, he goes, Dan, he goes, you know, a mystic is someone who believes in the reality of the invisible. So I sat with that for a while, and, you know, John had all this training in his background, and I I have very different training, you know, I'm a physician and a scientist and all these things and a therapist. And I said, well, you know, if you're really a scientist, you know that much of what's real is not visible to the eye. And so there is a reality of the invisible. And John was not a scientist, but it, it allowed us to bridge mysticism and scientific uh, immersion. So I would say to you that, um, and, and many of the different books I've written try to address this issue, especially a book called Mind, but it's in inter interconnected too. It basically says, you know, when you sit, let's say, and just quietly are in a forest, which I have a story of that in the book, you know, and you just let yourself be aware of what arises in your direct subjectively felt experience, right? So no one's giving you a lecture on this, not a book saying this, you do it yourself. Then soon, you know, the sense of separation begins to dissolve away. And if you allow yourself that silence and what seems like being alone, you realize actually it's not alone, it's all one. And this is where the word intraconnected came from, where you know, I did this in a, in a retreat where three days I was, quote, alone in the forest. And my colleagues were too. And when we came out of those three days of 
being by ourselves with the forest. Yeah, everyone was saying they're interconnected, interdependent, they had interbeing, they're interlaced, they're interwoven. And then it was my turn to talk, and I I'm I tried to be very specific with the words I use. And I said, you know, I resonate with what they were saying, but the inter implies a betweenness. And my experience in the forest was there was no more any betweenness. It was a wholeness where I was the trees and I was the creek and I was the cloud and I was the the body that's called Dan, you know? And I said, so I guess I would say I was intraconnected in the forest. There was a wholeness to everything. Well, when I came back to, you know, to the room that I was staying in before we went to the forest, I got out my computer. I wanted to write some notes. Every time I'd write the word, oh, it was intraconnected, it switched it to interconnected. So the autocorrect feature let me know there is no word in English called intraconnected. And I thought, that's so strange. If we don't have a word for it, we probably don't even have a way of talking about it with each other or even living into it. And, and that's what sort of, you know, started this real journey of, you know, could there be a book that used words to say, hey, the words we have are actually quite limiting but if we get them to say what we really are talking about, about the wholeness of everything, they could be liberating. And that's where interconnected came from. And, you know, so it wasn't getting rid of the me. So the, the fun way we say that is, you know, there's a me inside the body and there's a we that's relational and you don't need to do choose one or the other. You can have both. So we say me plus we is we. So that's a, a way to that we can remember it, you know, and even in Toronto, there's a group me to we and they had me write the afterword to their their booklet about me to we where i said yeah it's really not me to we which implies getting rid of me and going to we it's me to we and uh, you know so that that's where and this allows us i think to go from you know at least in the united states an extremely individualistic view and not go to the other extreme called collectivism which has its own issues, but instead find an integrated way where integration is where you have differences that are enabled and allowed and promoted even. But then as you link together those differences, you don't lose the integrity of the differentiated components. So that's where you get me plus we is we, an integrated, intraconnected identity. Very cool. I was actually going to ask you how to pronounce we, but I've, I've got it now. Now you got um, it, yeah. <laughs> Um, How would you have pronounced it, Niall? Because it's uh, a new word, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wasn't sure. We, uh, am we? I don't know. But uh, yeah, so a big part of this, Dan, is about changing the narrative, um, changing the narrative in people's heads about about what the self is. Um, and, you know, you can change cultures that way, arguably, um, which, which you mentioned in the book. But there's a big difference here between intellectually knowing this and feeling it, you know, taking it from the head to the heart. And I've just finished a dissertation on uh, something called the overview effect. I did this for my psychology masters. And this is, are you aware of this phenomenon? Tell, tell me about it. I, I've heard of it, but I may not know the same one you're thinking of. It's whenever astronauts leave earth for the first time and they look back and they see the planet and they they realize that it's you know they're part of that that system and it's very fragile and whenever they come back to earth they have a whole new sense of identity they get involved in a lot of like environmental causes and stuff so we were looking at could a virtual reality version of this um have a similar impact on people and we find we actually find a significant effect which is cool but really um, 
Because yeah. didn't uh, uh, William Shatner, who's Captain Kirk from the original Star Trek, I think he just did that. Oh, really? Yeah, you should read it. Yeah, I mean, it literally, I think it just happened where he went up at 90 something, maybe just 90. And then he came back and he had the overview effect. This is where I literally was just reading about this yesterday. And it's so great how timing works. Um, and that you could do that in virtual reality. That's that's literally awesome. And I'll bet it's filled with awe. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the, that's one of the main goals, I suppose, is to create that awe experience. Um, but yeah, how well, do we take how do we take this yeah. knowledge from from head intellectual knowing to heart to feeling? Yeah, well, I think experiences of awe can do that. Uh, and the overview effect sounds like that might be the case. Dacker Keltner will come out with a book soon on awe, you know, that goes into that. Um, and when you look at the three emotions of awe, gratitude, and compassion, these are what traditionally have been called self-transcendent emotions. But I've really worked with Dacker to say, that's not a good name. Let's call them self-expanding emotions. So that, as you're saying, it's this overview effect it busts through the um, construction of the separate self. Now, awe does the same thing, interestingly. And um, so, so what I, I completely agree with you. If it's just, you know, conceptual knowing, which in Greek, we use the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, you know, then, you know, you only know a limited amount. And that's, that's a helpful foundation, but it's not the end. The no, um, I'm sorry, it's noesis, N-O-E-S-I-S. That's the conceptual knowing, noesis. The gnosis, the one I spelled before, G-N-O-S-I-S, that's experiential wisdom and experiential knowledge. So we want to combine gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, with noesis, N-O-E-S-I-S, conceptual mm -hmm. knowledge, and bring them together. So, for example, in the book, you know, uh, you have these exercises to cultivate both noetic knowing and gnosis knowing. So that is, it is, and you can call it the heart, I agree with you, but it's really kind of experiential immersion, which includes the heart versus not just conceptual knowledge, which includes especially just the left hemisphere of the brain um, in the head. So yeah, so you absolutely want to bring those two together. And, you know, how do you do that? Uh, certainly the overview effect, if you can do a virtual reality thing, that'd be amazing. I mean, I once did a virtual reality prototype um, uh, where I was in a pool and they gave me like a snorkel mask and a snorkel, mm. but the snorkel mask was a virtual reality experience of swimming with whales. And, and it was, it was out of this world amazing. And I just let myself let go, even though I knew it was a mask, I knew it was a camera, you know, with projecting something on the screen. Um, there was a heavy weight holding me down Well, they had to have a bunch of people around me because I was swimming with this whale so much. I was pulling this weight around the pool, <clears throat> but I was changed after that. I mean, I, I, I feel even now telling you about it, Niall, I was swimming with this whale who was singing this song, begging me to realize that the oceans needed protection, you know? And just like when I was in the forest, so-called alone but it was really all one i could almost hear the trees speaking to me saying use that human body of yours to protect moss you know all, all of us you know the me and the we the moss you know uh and when i came out of there and i told the retreat leader i said you know the trees spoke to me he goes of course they did 
<laughs> I was like, I said, and they said, protect us. He goes, good. He goes, now go do it, you know? And, and it changed everything. So, you know, just yesterday I came back from a big, you know, kind of climate meeting where, you know, we were talking about how the health of humanity depends on the health of the planet. Um, and then in terms of your question, how do, how do people feel that, that expansion of self, then it doesn't become like something you're doing just to do it to, oh, I'm helping the planet. No, you realize you are the planet. You are all of humanity. And then just like you might get up and take a sip of water, take a deep breath or, you know, enjoy a beautiful day, the earth is you. And so then you are literally sensing it. You have the perspective of it. And then you have the agency acting on behalf of it. So, you know, I'm so excited about the interconnected conversation because it puts out the spa word and says, look, you can believe the lie that your spa of self is only in your body and go for it and, and have a good life and see how that goes. But for people who start realizing the spa is as big as really the universe, but let's just stay on earth. You know, it's as big as the whole of the biosphere of earth. Then you have this incredible thing where not only do you transcend the limits of your body, but then you realize that when this body is no longer alive, because you only get about 100 years to live in it, you go on. You are life on earth, right? So, I mean, for me, the whole thing has shifted my relationship with death. Because I realized, you know, not only am I going to try to bring more well-being into the world, but I'm going to also try to enjoy the world. And at the same time, I don't have to worry about dying because like I am the planet. I literally with that word, we are the planet, you know? And so then you go, okay, well, the body gets a hundred years. Cool. I'll, I'll see if I can do some positive things in the world during that time. And then when this body goes, the end of why, if you can say my life, my life is not with the end of the body. And it, it's just incredibly liberating. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I often think that we might, it might be easier to feel this if, if our skin was the same color as the planet, you know, like blue and green. And if we were walking around like that, you know, like, oh, there's just earthlings, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, there's um, all sorts of differentiated aspects of your skin. So your skin is blue and green because you are the planet. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I think a, a, a point that's that that's really worth emphasizing here as well is you know what you're what you're essentially doing here is you're bringing together the best of I suppose Eastern and Western wisdom, and we're not saying that we're losing our individuality here. You know, we're bringing in right. the the collectivism of the East, but also maintaining the individuality in the West and finding a synergy between the two. Can you maybe expand upon that as as well, Dan? You know, I think that's such an important point, Niall, and that's why I try to really go gently and carefully and in a solid foundation saying, you know, the notion of intraconnection is not about saying the individual disappears. So when we look at the very beginning in the journey of the book, we look at a process called integration, which is defined very clearly the way we're using that word as there are differentiated components, so that's the individual, in our case, your body, my body, the different trees, the plants. So we have individuality preserved, and there's linkage. 
And in the linkage, there's what's created, is it called synergy? It's where there's a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. So you retain the me, you become a part of the we, and then the interconnected experience of it, because the we would be the inter part. So you have the inner, the inter. When you put them all together, you get the intra, you know? And what's been really, really fascinating is then, you know, people who say, well, I like my individual life. You're saying you're not losing that at all. Not at all. In fact, you're gaining more without losing anything, right? So then you go, well, uh, aren't I losing like the uniqueness of who I am? No, you're actually not losing that because that's the amazing thing. It's called emergence. Something is emerging in your allowing that experience of self to expand without losing the fact I have a me, right? So you want to feed your body well, exercise your body, stretch your body, enjoy your body, you know, understand your body, know the history of your body, bodies like yours, fine. Zero, you get rid of that, nothing. But now what you're saying is add to it. And this is why it's so important not to use words like self-transcendent or, um, or even, even terms that we have to be careful of, like self-understanding, let's call it inner understanding or self-compassion, let's call it inner compassion or self-regulation, let's call it inner regulation, fine. You've got a body or you wouldn't be hearing what I'm saying. So you have a body, but you are more than your body. And people go, what? How can I be more than my body? So that's why in the book, it gently goes through, you know, how across the lifespan, the experience of a narrative self narrates, oh, I'm just Nile in this body. And there, that guy over there, he's just Dan in the body. And then the narrative, there's nothing wrong with narrative. I mean, stories are really important. But if the story is wrong, if it's limiting, it'll become a prison. But if it's liberating, it becomes a playground. And that's, that's all the difference in the world. So then you don't, you don't lose. The narrative becomes really important where you say, I am this inner Nile. I am this inner Dan. And I am also the collective we. And there's a part of the book, I don't know how you felt about this, but when I said, okay, let's start with the broadest sense of how this energy flow emerges. And then we go through this deep um, and I hope really accessible journey where you say, look, at some point before the Big Bang, there was just possibility. And then became energy flow from possibility that got condensed as matter. And then the matter turned into stars and galaxies and all, all this stuff, right? So then, then within that, you know, you have the earth forming, and then you come here to some of that matter became life forms, you know, and then those life forms went on their own journey of evolution, you know, from sponges to ultimately to vertebrates, to, to mammals, to primates, to humans for just 300,000 years compared to like billions of years that, you know, I think it's 13 billion years since the Big Bang. So it's just this teeny fraction that humans are around. But then you get your own life, you get about 100 years, that's the even smaller fraction. So you could say, well, I'm really nothing and I'm limited. Or you could say, I'm everything and I'm unlimited. And then you realize you, re, re, you are both matter and energy flow. And energy flow is this movement from possibility to actuality. And then, and I hope this part of the book really, I, I was trying to look at the other day, you know, where did I introduce this? It's like page 133, where you start diving into what does energy flow really mean? 
And then when you get into that, in terms of people experiencing it, what, you know, my colleagues and students, you know, have felt is that when you really understand the nature of energy as this movement from possibility to actuality, and then you realize the experience of consciousness of being aware looks like it is arising from this plane of possibility, this, this place of potentiality, right? This, this generator of diversity, you know? It, then that spacious place, in, in quantum physics terms, you'd call it the sea of potential or the quantum vacuum, you know, then you start realizing, wow, I actually every day, like I do the wheel of awareness every day, I drop into this spacious place of potentiality and then as thoughts arise or memories or emotions or sensations, whatever, those are the movement from possibility to actuality. And then it's like being in a dance. And then everything becomes like this cool, you know, I'm just going to like flow with this incredible thing. And, you know, people will turn to me, they go, oh, you must be on drugs. And I go, no, I just did the wheel of awareness. And, you know, Dacker, Keltner, he, he, he assessed people doing the wheel. They did get the same states of mysticism and awe that you get with psychedelics. It's true. But this is a practice you can do every day. And then suddenly everything becomes like, like kind of when I had that horse accident, you know, everything becomes like, well, I have words for these things. But actually beneath the words is like this incredible rainbow of color and incredible options of other ways to experience it. Um, and, you know, I have a, 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 a drug addicted person who's now in recovery, but um you know, so I had a, an aversion to using drugs uh, that alter your mind. Um, so, so for me, that horse accident was a different way, as I say in the book, of getting stoned. Um, but then the wheel of awareness became a way of making sure you could always access that quantum realm and allow what's on the rim, the particular, particularities, not to imprison you. And then the idea of self being only in the body it isn't just a concept. It becomes this feeling where energy flow is not limited by your skull. It's not limited by your skin. And then you become immersed in this whole sea of energy flow that is just like fantastical, you know, and, and every day is like, you go, it's like a miracle, you know? So if John were still alive, sadly, his, he died, you know, almost 15 years ago now, but John O'Donohue, you know, he and I would have been laughing our heads off because in many ways, he, his, one of his favorite authors was Meister Eckhart from the 13th century. And, you know, I think there would have been a lot we could have shared in common about the experience of mysticism and spirituality and all that stuff. So anyway, those are just some some ideas. There's a, there's a lot in there. Um, with John O'Donoghue, you know, he's one of these people, he falls into a very small category of people that could be described as spiritual entertainers who, who get you to sort of really think deeply about the big questions in life, but make you laugh mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, such a, such a talented, a yeah. talented person. Um, and I, I love what you say in the book about how we exist in actuality and potentiality at the same time and simultaneously. If you, if you could maybe ex expand a, a bit on that, Dan, and I have to ask as well, you know, um, could you, could you maybe walk us through how someone can uh, use the wheel of awareness in their own their own life? Yeah, absolutely, Niall. I mean, um, you know, I, I think if this were like 25 years ago, I wouldn't even believe I could talk like what I'm about to say. But in the journey of these last, you know, 25 years, 
I mean, part of it knowing John and 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 part of it uh, just um, doing all these wheel of awareness uh, practices with not only patients, but you know, I did it with 50,000 people in person uh, before the pandemic and then got people's results. And then once they described what their experience was of distinguishing, especially the hub of being aware from the rim, which is basically a, a visual image of a wheel where the rim would be have four segments, you know, all of them would be energy flow components. So in the first segment, it's energy flow from outside your body. And you get this in the form of what you see, you know, for, for light, what you hear, air molecules moving, what you smell and taste, chemicals, you know, chemical energy and, and touch, you know, the, the kinetic pressure on the skin. And then you move the spoke of attention, the singular spoke of attention over to the next segment, which is energy flow from inside the body. And then you explore that, you know, feelings in your muscles, your bones, your organs, you know, and you go through them systematically. You can list, go to my website. You can do this for free um, and, and systematically go through it. Then you move the spoke to the third segment, which is probably energy flow inside the head. It's like emotions and thoughts and memories and hopes and dreams and longings, desires, beliefs, images, stuff like that. Then you move the spoke over <laughs> in the basics uh, practice to the fourth segment, which is your relationships with other people, with all of humanity, with all of nature. Uh, and then in a more advanced step, we add statements of loving kindness that research and shows very integrative because it's an integration practice. And then in an advanced step two, you actually take the spoke before you go to the fourth segment and you bend it around into the hub itself. And so I'll just spend a few moments talking about that because you know, when people uh, do that, people have never meditated before in their life, they'll say, oh my God, you know, I was empty but full. I was full of love. I was connected to everyone and everything. I was with God. I was home. I was full of joy. It was so peaceful. Oh my God, this is just this sea of potential or whatever. And so I would take these results and I had a recorder with me and I would transcribe what I heard. And, you know, so then the question was, what is going on? How is the hub of being aware different from the rim of what you're aware of. So I went to all the brain studies I could find and really couldn't find anything that correlated with, you know, what people were saying, for example, empty, but full, what does that mean in the brain? So I happened to be teaching years ago at a, um, a physics, it was a physics meeting with 150 physicists and me. And, uh, and so I kept on asking them, you know, what is time and what is energy and all this stuff. And they said the most amazing thing. They said energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. And I, I just, I don't know what to make of that. How weird is that from possibility to actuality? So I started drawing it out on a, on a, on a piece of paper I had and for some students who were asking me about it. And then what became clear is that in quantum physics terms, possibility is represented, we can put it on a graph, um, as this kind of sea of potential, this quantum vacuum, this generator of diversity, it's basically called the formless source of all form. So it's empty of form, but it's full of possibility. So I went, oh my gosh, this is maybe why people are saying the hub is empty, but full. And when you ask them, what do you mean? They go, I don't know. It's just how it feels. So finally, I found something in science that correlated with people's first person experience that's called first person data 
And when they tell you what their experience was, that becomes second person data because you're hearing them translate into words. But now I had third person findings from quantum physics that correlated with the second person data and the first person experience, even in myself, like this morning. I mean, I you can drop into this place. Now, it turns out that um, once you start making statements like that, like it looks like consciousness, the experience of being aware arises when energy flow is in this, you have a probability distribution curve in the maximal uncertainty of the quantum vacuum. Maximal uncertainty is maximal freedom and possibility. So what you see then is that all your options are there. Like if I had uh, a million words you and I shared, Niall, what's the chance of you guessing which of the million I'm about to say? It's one out of a million. So it's near zero. So that's maximal uncertainty, but I have the freedom to say any of the million words. So there's maximal freedom, maximal possibility. So this is where it became really fascinating that, you know, we get lost in what we call plateaus of, you know, filtered possibility in limited amounts, like a separate self, because partly because I think we're afraid of dropping into that place of maximal uncertainty because in modern culture, being certain is thought of as good, but dropping into the, the hub is really maximal uncertainty. That's where we get freedom. So that became really clear. And then what, what was really interesting was once you could get out of this solo self plateau of what you've been told that you are, and you access this place, then that plane of possibility, we call it in this graph, becomes like a portal through which integration arises. And you start to live life rather than making things happen you tap into that space and then things start arising in these kind of wild ways that have a feeling of synchronicity or you can't believe that happened and that happened. And this, you know, all these things that maybe on the surface seem like coincidences, but it's almost like you're tapping into a, this larger reality. And I was 10 years after John had passed, they asked me to do a whole like two day thing um, for uh, a memorial for him. And I, I had people do the wheel of awareness practice, which everyone could do, but I did it in this two day event. People got into the, the hub and uh, I think it was on the same trip. Yeah, I had just, someone had done it in America who's from England. She flew me to England and we did it at um, Sir Isaac Newton's house because Newton uh, talks about uh, what's called now classical physics or Newtonian physics is now after him. But what that is, is these large objects like a body or an apple falling off an apple tree has certain properties of time and of things are like entities. But it now we know for the last hundred years in quantum physics, when you study small units of energy, like a photon or an electron, it doesn't have those Newtonian properties it has a whole different set of quantum properties, which are all about more about probability where there are no entities, they're only verb-like events. So what, what that allows you to do then is it allows you to see, wow, there are sort of Newtonian qualities to a thought. It's like an entity, here's a thought, it comes and goes. But in the plane of possibility, in that, in that hub of the wheel, it looks like it's the quantum realm. So then you start going, wow, in the quantum realm, there are not only no nouns, there's no directionality of change called time. It's timeless. And that's what people describe in the hub. So in all these ways, there was this incredible, virtually complete overlap between people's descriptions 
of what the hub feels like to them directly, just a feeling. They don't know anything about quantum physics. And then what quantum physics says about the quantum realm, and the month before the book Aware, which kind of gives you a way to do the Wheel of Awareness, but a month before it came out, the cover story of a very conservative public scientific journal, uh, Scientific American, was, you know, when does the quantum realm meet the Newtonian realm? And I said, thank the good Lord that that happened, because I thought people were going to kill me, you know, for uh, for talking about quantum stuff, you know. Um, so what we can do then is have this opportunity to explore the quantum realm, which I do every day, you know. So this is what you do with the Wheel of Awareness. So that's kind of an overview of what the wheel is is all about. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, something that kind of came to mind as you were as you were going through that was, you know, this whole idea of um, emptiness and fullness at the same time. Um, it reminds me, I, I heard someone recently talking about this. He's a researcher. He was talking about um, all of the research done on psychedelics. There's kind of one major um, thing that is found in almost every study. And it's that what you would expect whenever someone is experiencing psychedelics is that the brain would light up like a Christmas tree because there's all this activity going on. But what they actually find is a massive reduction in activity. And I think it's particularly, I'm not sure the exact reason. I don't want to say the wrong thing here, so I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to go there, but um, there's just, maybe maybe what's happening is you're you're entering that realm of potentiality whenever you're taking taking the, these substances. I don't I don't know. Um, you know, Niall, I think that's exactly what's happening, uh, and there's a number of ways of describing it. But um, for me, you know, that finding is crucial to understanding a number of things. And uh, a colleague of mine, Amishi Ja, and her colleagues at, at University of Miami. You know, when she did the Wheel of Awareness and I showed her the plane of possibility um, view of the source of, of consciousness itself, then she went on a search with a computer analysis to find that this open awareness had these qualities when you did a computer analysis of the electrical activity in the brain, that it was very uncommitted. It was the most uncommitted state. Now, the way you would see that is exactly as you're describing it you drop into this place where instead of the brain having a lot of activity where it's committing itself this way and committing itself that way to firing, it drops into this incredibly open, spacious, spacious meaning possibilities are there, lots of space for possibilities. And so it's exactly like you're saying, and you know, some of the psychedelic researchers have been turning to this, this proposal to really understand you know, that state of accessing that plane of possibility may be the awe experience of mystical experiences during psychedelics. That's the key ingredient to therapeutic improvement. So, yeah. So it, it, yeah, I think you're right, right in the right direction. And what's interesting about it from a, a, an emotional point of view is what it means is that there may be in terms of a spiritual journey, there may be a period of a bit of disorganization, or as one, one person in a workshop said, you know, the wheel of awareness broke me into pieces. And then everyone's up, you know, waiting. And she goes, and now I'm at peace, you know, because you have all the, you have all these pieces of the way we call them plateaus that say, I'm this way, I'm this way. And you have fixed ideas. So it was really nerve wracking for her to go into the, the hub. But what it did was that's the metaphor, you know, the hub and the rim. But what it did, I think in a mechanism kind of way was it tapped her into this, this plane of possibility. So what I wanted to say was at John's memorial, 
when I did this. This is right after being in England and the documentary filmmaker did it. We did the wheel around the apple tree where Newton figured out, you know, gravity and stuff. Um, that was an amazing experience to say, look, Newton, you didn't know about the quantum realm, but now we know it's like water and land. You know, you can swim in the water and you can come up on land. They have different properties. There's a quantum realm and there's actually a Newtonian, thank you, Newton, you know, a macro state realm versus the micro state quantum realm. Anyway, it was incredible. So now I'm, I'm in, in if we go from England to Ireland and now we're at the memorial. So I do the wheel of awareness practice and people start experiencing this. I'm with God, I'm with love, I'm with all this stuff. And, you know, there's like 500 people in the room. In the second row are John's classmates from when he became a priest. So there are all these practicing Catholic priests in there. And I, and I go, well, you know, one way of understanding what the plane of possibility is, you know, and this is, you can turn this into an acronym if you want. It's the generator of diversity. And I go, oh my God, you know, I said something sacrilegious. So when the break happened, I ran down to them, I said, Oh, I'm so, I want to apologize. They go, no, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. They go, you know, John always wanted to make a bridge between science and spirituality. And that was, that's what you're really showing us is that there is no separation. And I said, that, cool, that's cool. So, so far, no religious leaders have been insulted by that acronym of G-O-D as the generator of diversity. And what's so beautiful about it is whether you're a science-based person or a religious-based person or both, you know, we have now a way of understanding uh, that a spiritual journey is really a journey towards the truth that we are this emergent aspect of energy flow that can tap into the god to this generator of diversity this plane of possibility this formless source of all form every day you can do the wheel of awareness every day and then as you learn to get into that hub and distinguish it from the rim you're learning to tap into that by embracing uncertainty. And then the beautiful thing is then throughout the day, like I can do it right now, you can like go between, you know, the Newtonian, if you will, macro state world where there's a directionality of, of change we call time. You go, okay, I'm, I'm in the time bound world, but I can also access the timeless world, right? And, and when you do that, then initially it can feel a little awkward, like, but you just have to know that like when you get on your bicycle or your car, and you come to an intersection and there's a red light, you know, take your Newtonian foot and press on the Newtonian brakes. Otherwise you will become one with everything, you know, in the intersection. So sometimes you've got to use your Newtonian powers and, 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 and skills to not get into an accident like that. And other times underneath it all, you access this, this spacious place of open awareness. Very cool. Very cool. One of the phrases that I loved from the book was uh, let go and let G-O-D. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's an e easy way to remember it as well. So just a couple yeah. of questions now to finish up, Dan, because I know you've got to get going. Um, the first one is we're asking all of the speakers at this summit, you know, three books that have had maybe the biggest impact on your own thinking or maybe three books that you'd recommend that every mental health professional should read. If anything comes to mind when I when I ask that question, so so not the books I've written, you know, but other people's books. Is that what you mean? We're going to recommend your books anyway. Yeah, but books yeah, you know, that's you. a really interesting question. Um, I would start with John's book Anamkara. You know, I think that's a a beautiful book for everyone to read. Um, you know, and I I might be pushing this a little bit, but to go with his to bless the space between us, sneak in two books under one author's name. Uh, um, 
you know, I love Jack Cornfield's book, um, uh, A Pathway with Heart. I think that's a really beautiful uh, thing for every therapist to, to, to look at that. Um, and then I'm going to actually say my wife's book. Caroline Welch wrote a book called uh, The Gift of Presence. And it's this incredible practical guide. It's called a mindfulness guide for women, but it could be for any human being. Uh, it really does this incredible job in a practical way of showing how mindfulness practices, you know, are really accessible. And then what they do at moments to allow you not just to be present, but to really prioritize things and also to pivot when you need to. So for a therapist, what's really useful about that is you see, you know, in many ways, people come for therapy or even people on a spiritual journey are looking to pivot that something isn't quite right. And she does this magnificent job in that book uh, of, of highlighting the steps of that. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so we'll, li we'll link to those. And for people that want to buy the book and learn more and maybe do some training with the Mindsight Institute, where can they where can they go to learn more information about that? Yeah. So, the, so um, you, you can get the book anywhere you like to get books. So Intraconnected is the book's name. And um, and really let us know how you experience the book and start your interconnected conversations. Um, the way to reach us would be, the, there's two linked websites. One is drdansiegel.com. The other is mindsightinstitute.com. Fantastic, fantastic. Many, many courses you can take and all sorts of fun ways of getting immersed as a community. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I, I really don't think there is any more important topic that people could be considering or reflecting on or, um, yeah, just, just thinking about now. You know, this is the most important thing, I suppose, facing humanity at the moment. And Dan has written a book here that basically allows you to update your sense of self into one that w can enable you to feel intimately connected to everything and everyone in the world around you which is which is no small task you know so then i just want to say thank you so much for writing the book and um, thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom with us today it's been an absolute delight to speak with you i've loved every minute of it and i want to wish you the best of luck going forward all right thank you Niall. thanks for all the wonderful work you do and it's been a pleasure to be here with you thanks so oh. much Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes, and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.